Well, I'm finally back. I've been sick for a couple of weeks. Starting to feel like myself again this week. Still got a little bit of a cough, but if I just start talking nonstop, I think it'll be okay. <laughs> so hang on. <coughs> um, I meant to do this, this sermon last week, but I was sick. And so we're looking this morning on the Reformation. This was... Uh, the 500th year anniversary of the Reformation that's marked from um, 1517 when Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel in uh, Wittenberg, Germany. And uh, the Reformation was taking place over a longer period than just that, but that's kind of the date that we mark it. And uh, what I wanted to do and that was on October 31st. So just just remember, every time Halloween comes around, it's not really Halloween, it's Reformation Day. And uh, just keep that in mind. Uh, that was the day when, when we sort of mark when things, things changed in the church after about a thousand years of, um, well, not the gospel, uh, to put it bluntly. Um, and I think what you have to imagine this morning, this morning is going to be a little bit different. It's going to be a little bit of a history lesson and kind of kind of starting with history and moving into doctrine and into the gospel. And uh, I think we need to remember this. You have to imagine a time for almost a thousand years when uh, in, in Europe there really was just one church, the Catholic Church. And uh, it was a political and government structure. It was a theological and doctrinal and dogmatic structure. And uh, there was a point in time when there started to be... Um, the uprooting or the glimmering of the gospel returning to people's lives within the greater structure of the medieval church. And I'll call it the medieval church. And uh, so as I say, we want to look at this this morning and understand what it is that we're recognizing with 500 years of Reformation and all the things that we take for granted that seem foreign to us. We almost have to cast our minds back and imagine a totally different scenario in terms of culture and especially in terms of religion and theology. And the reason why I want to do this and why we need to do this is it's easy to forget. It's easy as God's people to forget what our past was and what we've come through and what people have done and gone before us that we stand upon. And God's people continually forgot God's works and His Word. Uh, And He had to be constantly reminded. And so we didn't want to be a people that forget. The other reason is that our enemy is always working at sowing confusion and lies about God's truth. Satan's first question to Eve was, excuse me, did God really say? And so it's important, and the Reformation was important, and the Reformation continues to be important, that we are reformed and always reforming. Because the question is, what did God really say and what authority do we go to to discover the word of God? And the enemy will constantly try to layer confusion and lies over what God really has spoken to his people and wants us to know. And then the reforms of the 15th and 16th century, which are especially (coughs) the five solas, sola scriptura, sola fide, or, or scripture alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, by Christ alone, for God's glory alone, the five solas, are needed as much today as they are then to break the hold of false religion on one hand and also to make known how fallen mankind can be forgiven and know their holy creator. Because this is the important question. As, as uh, Steve talked about last week in his um, message on Jesus cleansing the temple, the question has always been and, and will always be for mankind, how does... An unrighteous man 
have a relationship with his holy and pure and righteous creator? How can God dwell among his people when he is righteous and pure and we are fallen and sinful? And so this is the key question of the Reformation. How can we be forgiven? How can we have a relationship with God? And what is the true answer to that question? So first, the history lesson. And I'll just cover a few of the different people that are important to the Reformation. And there's more than just these. There's dozens. There's hundreds, really. But 500 years ago, on October 31st, 1517, there was a Catholic monk, Martin Luther. And he nailed a paper to a door in Wittenberg, Germany. And on that paper, there were 95 theses or questions against the then current practices and the doctrines of the Catholic Church. And it's from that day in history that we mark what we call the Reformation, or the Protestant Reformation specifically, from which springs the main division in Christianity between the Catholic Church and all the Protestant denominations, the Lutherans, the Anglicans, the Baptists, the Anabaptists, the Mennonites, all all of those denominations are all Protestant denominations, and they stand as a split from the Catholic denomination. And it's a Protestant Reformation because we were protesting. I mean, you may not realize that. Did you realize that you're called Protestants in the Protestant church because you were born out of protest? I mean, you're all more rebellious than you realize. That you belong to a rebellious group of people that rejected almost a thousand years of Catholic dogma and theology and rose up in rebellion against that and were thusly challenged during that time. So what was it that the Protestant Reformation was protesting? What needed reforming? And that's where we're going to go back about 100 years before Martin Luther, and we're going to start a quick history lesson here. I'm just going to cover three other men and see what led up to that day in 1517. John Wycliffe, and uh, he was born around 1330, about 150 years before Luther would nail that page to the door. John Wycliffe was a professor of philosophy at Oxford. But he felt pulled more and more towards theological studies. And at Oxford, he had access to the Bible in Latin, which is a rare thing to have access to the Bible in any language outside of the church, but it was only available in the Latin Vulgate. And he studied the scriptures, and as he studied at Oxford, he became aware of how far the medieval church had wandered from the truth, and what the Word of God spoke in the Bible was not what the church was teaching. And Wycliffe produced three very important papers based on his study of the Bible, one called On Divine Dominion, which argued that there was no biblical basis for the authority of the Pope over the church. He wrote a paper called On Civil Dominion, which continued the argument that there was no biblical basis for the authority of the Pope over civil government or over royalty. And so the kings and the queens liked this guy. And then he wrote another paper, and most importantly perhaps, his third paper on the truth of sacred scripture, which he wrote in 1378, which established that the only place Christian authority could lie is in the Scripture alone. That Christian authority does not lie with the Pope, it does not lie with councils, it does not lie with the Church, that the Scripture is the highest authority for the Christian life and thought. And you think, well, of course it is. It's always been that way. It's not always been that way. This was revolutionary. This was a protest against what had been the status quo for almost a thousand years. And of course, these were the beginnings and the sparks of the Reformation assertion some 150 years later of sola scriptura. Scripture alone has authority over Christian doctrine. 
And Wycliffe's suspicion of the authority of the Pope will become very important in decades to come as monks and priests and laymen will be imprisoned and burned at the stake for holding the Bible as a higher authority than the church. And so because Wycliffe held so strongly to this newly discovered truth on biblical authority, he also spearheaded the efforts to have the Bible translated out of its original languages and out of Latin into into common English. And we take that for granted today, that the Bible is both the final authority on God and his message and that anyone has access to read it in their own language. But you have to understand, in the 1300s, we have to remember that the Pope and the councils of the church were of a higher authority than Scripture, Scripture, and to question that or to even translate the Bible into a common language was punishable by death. Now, living at about the same time as Wycliffe, as a man... uh, Jan Hus, uh, born around 1369, died in 1415, and he's younger than Wycliffe, but he lived at the same time, and he was born into a poor family, and he, he joined the Catholic Church, and he also served as a professor of philosophy, but in Prague, and uh, he compared what he found in the scriptures to what he saw happening in the church, and he couldn't reconcile the two either, and he began to read the forbidden papers of Wycliffe and expanded on Wycliffe's attacks against the church, and Hus also held that scripture was higher in authority than the pope or councils, and he also added on to Wycliffe and started to attack the church's practice of selling indulgences. And indulgences are the means by which the church told people that they could pay off some of the punishment that they must still receive for their sins in purgatory. In other words, the sins that Christ died on the cross for were not completely paid for. There was still punishment, temporal punishment left for our sins that we had to pay in purgatory. And not only that, but we could actually purchase indulgences from the Catholic Church to pay down some of that sin. So the indulgence was that some of the punishment for you, or if you did the, did the payment or if you did the sacrifice for a, a family member who was already in purgatory, it would reduce the amount of payment they would have to do for their temporal sins. And so Jan Hus is looking at Scripture and saying, this isn't what the Bible says. And so he started to speak out against indulgences, which will also become important as we come to uh, Martin Luther. And so for his preaching and writing in this manner, Jan Hus was ordered to attend and, to, and he was promised safety at the church council of Constance. But as soon as he arrived at the church council at Constance, he was immediately thrown into prison for six months. And afterwards, he was ordered to recant his position on these matters, which, of course, he refused to do. And so he was chained to a stake on a pile of his own burning books and was put to death by fire, claiming, as he burned, what I taught with my lips, I will now seal with my blood. And that is how Jan Hus died for the gospel. He wouldn't recant. Having learned the truth, he could not live or teach a lie. The scriptures, not the church, are our final authority. And the penalty for our sin is paid fully by Christ, not by indulgences or penance or works that we do or sacraments of the church, which was to become the basis in a hundred years for another reformed sola, sola fide, or by faith alone. Not works, not indulgences, not penance, but only by faith are we justified and made right before God. Now there's one more that I want to cover 
before I get to Martin Luther, and that's Menno Simons. He was a little bit later on, and he was born in 1496. And that name may ring familiar to you. Menno Simons is the father of the modern Mennonites. And he started out, just get your head around this, he started out as a Catholic priest in Utrecht, Netherlands. And he's a Catholic, made a Catholic priest who had never in his life actually read the Bible. Um, And he didn't want to read the Bible because he was afraid the Bible might confuse him uh, about the doctrines and the dogma of the church. And so here he is, a Catholic priest, never having read the Bible. And you just have to understand that in the 13th, between the 13th and 15th centuries, there simply was virtually no gospel to be found apart from remnants of believers outside of the church. Um, and I won't get into them, but such as the Waldensians in France and a few other pockets of believers who are quite apart from the church and quite untouched really by civilization, uh, so to speak, in the sense that they were just apart from the urban centers and were largely left alone. And the gospel did continue in remnants in these places, but within the organized church, there simply was no gospel. You have to imagine coming to church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday for hundreds of years and never hearing the gospel. And this is why the Reformation. This is why this had to happen. So anyway, you have this Catholic priest now uh, Menno Simons in, in the Netherlands, who uh, begins to question some of the doctrines of the church. He, the question that he had was actually transubstantiation, the, the presence of the flesh and blood of Jesus in the Eucharist, or in communion as the Catholic Church taught. And he started to question this, and he thought, well, I'll, I'll look into Scripture and see what it says. And as he's reading the Bible, he not only cannot find support for the doctrines of the church that he was questioning, but he also discovered the gospel. He discovered the good news that God saves people by grace through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, not through the sacraments and penance and indulgences of the church. And so Menno dropped the Latin mass. He stopped teaching the mass in Latin. He began to preach in the common tongue of the people. He began to preach the discoveries of the gospel to his parishioners. People started getting saved. His heart was set on fire with the truth of what he had found. But he still hung on to his old pride and his old other sins. And it was not until 1535 when 300 Anabaptists were executed for their faith that Menno finally came to terms with what it means to stand for the gospel and understand what it means to have a transformed life by what the scripture teaches And he records his own words when he finally comes to terms with it. He says, I reflected upon my unclean carnal life and also upon the hypocritical doctrine of idolatry, which I still practice daily in an appearance of godliness, but without relish. My heart trembled within me and I prayed to God with sighs and tears that he would give to me a sorrowing sinner, the gift of his grace and create within me a clean heart and graciously through the merits of the blood of Christ, forgive forgave my unclean walk and frivolous, easy life. And so Menno Simons comes to know Christ, comes to have this relationship with God that's been so elusive for so many, for so many centuries within the church because Sunday after Sunday, the gospel was not proclaimed, but a religion was proclaimed. And so you have sola scriptura, the one authority of scripture, sola fide, by faith alone, sola gratia, only by the grace of God, and sola Christus, only through Christ. And there were many others leading up to and continuing the work of Luther around this hundred-year period 
of sort of the mid-1400s until the mid-1500s. You had Eric Zingli in, uh, Zingli in Sweden. You had John Knox uh, in Scotland, a Knox Presbyterian. You've probably seen about 100 Knox Presbyterians in your life. Uh, John Calvin, of course, who established Reformed doctrine as a systematic theology, the Institutes. Um, you have... Uh, Sorry, you have uh, Lady Jane Grey, who is the cousin to Queen Mary, who was a Protestant. Uh, she was in line for the throne, and uh, she was uh, in favor of the Protestant church against the Catholic church, but she was overthrown, eventually killed uh, for her faith and for her stance against the Catholic church by Queen Mary. You have William Tyndale, an English translator from the original languages. He went back to the original Greek and the original Hebrew and, and really gave us the first true translation of the English Bible. Uh, in from the original languages, Helen Strike, Sturkey, sorry, uh, Helen Sturkey uh, refused to pray to the Virgin Mary, and she was drowned for the heresy of not praying to Mary. Uh, Thomas, excuse me, Thomas Cran- Cranmer uh, in England, he was the father of the Anglican Church, who who rewrote the the liturgy and the prayer book for to to focus on justification by faith alone. You have Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Rid- Ridley. Uh, who were martyred in 1555, uh, tied together to the same stake and burned to death in England uh, for preaching the gospel. But it just goes on and on. There were literally hundreds. And if if you want to get some of these little snippets through the month of October at desiringgod.org, you can see the thing there. There's there's little historical snippets of these people that you can listen to. They're about 10 minutes each. But that brings us to Martin Luther, to Luther himself and those 95 theses that were mailed to a church door in Wittenberg. And, and like all of these other men and women, Martin Luther's journey into, into the history of the Reformation was a personal one. He grew up as nominally religious. Uh, he grew up uh, with a father who wanted him to be a lawyer. And uh, he went to school uh, and got uh, with, for a law degree and working towards that. And then one night he had a near-death experience in a thunderstorm. And Martin Luther vowed to become a monk after this near-death experience where he was almost killed. Sorry, excuse me. He was almost uh, struck by lightning. And so he has this near-death experience. And uh, he vows that if, uh, if, if God gets him through the night, maybe you've done this before too, right? If, if you just get me through this, God, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll, I'll give my life to you. And uh, so he, he made this vow during the thunderstorm. And unlike you and I, uh, when he survived the night, he actually followed through on his vow. And he immediately went and uh, signed up to become a monk. And uh, so he became a monk and then a priest and also then became a professor in theology and earned a doctorate. This is Martin Luther. And, uh, but he still struggled. Right, So this journey into the Reformation was deeply personal for Martin because here is a man who knows God, knows the church, knows the doctrine, knows the theology, but he's still personally struggling with his sense of forgiveness. He knows he's a sinner. He knows that he has no standing before God. And none of the sacraments, none of the practices, none of the dogma of the Catholic Church, of which he was a monk and a priest and a professor... We're helping him with his sense of forgiveness or sense of justification and qualification for, for before God. He did the penance. He took the vows. He had access to all the sacraments. And he thought this would solve his guilt and assure him of salvation, but it didn't. And he just found himself no more relieved of his sin than before. And then finally, around 1510 to 1513, he actually is sent to Rome to serve in Rome as a priest. 
And he is thinking, I'm going to be at the heart of the Catholic Church in Rome. If there is any place I am going to get this settled in my life, it's going to be here. And for three years, he practices faith in Rome. He's with the pontiff. He's with the bishops. He's with the cardinals. He has access to the whole church. And it does not help. All he sees is the corruption and the politics and that the practices of the church do not align with Scripture that he's reading in the Latin Vulgate. And so finally reading in Romans after that three-year period, Luther's eyes fall to Romans 1, 16 to 17, which reads, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that's the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Martin Luther, you have to imagine this monk, this Catholic monk, priest, he's reading this. And he's reading this not in the Latin this time, but he's reading it in the original Greek. And so the word for righteousness in the original Greek is dikaiosun, which does not mean, as it's translated in the Latin, that it's a righteousness that you are made into. It means in the original Greek, dikaiosun means to, not to, to make righteous or to make into something that is to righteous, but it means to declare righteous or to count as righteous, to regard as righteous something that isn't. And Luther, like everything just kind of falls into place. Suddenly the light goes on in Luther and he realizes all the teaching of scripture falls into place behind this understanding of justification. And it falls into place for Luther, just like it did all these other men and women before him. And he realized that men are not made righteous by sacraments or works or penance or absolution or by a priest or indulgence of the church, but they are, that we are made right with God. We are justified and made righteous with God by faith alone. That by God's grace alone, he imparts on us a righteousness that is not ours. And it all just unfolds for Luther and he gets it he understands and Luther records his own thoughts at that moment he says when I discovered that I was born again of the Holy Ghost and the doors of paradise swung open and I walked through and so there was this transforming understanding that came from reading the scriptures themselves not hearing the interpretation through the church and meanwhile, at the same time, Luther is watching the Catholic Church's practice of granting indulgences. Remember those? He's watching this practice of granting indulgences just continue to uh, expand and is supposed to provide absolution to sinners and it becomes increasingly corrupt and oppressive in its effect on the population in Germany. In 1517, a friar named Johann Tetzel begins to sell indulgences in Germany to raise funds to renovate St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And the indulgences, you have to understand, were a piece of paper and they were stamped with the, with the Pope's seal. And uh, it declared that the purchaser, or the one for whom it was purchased for, had received pardon for a portion of their punishment to be expected in purgatory. And the marketing slogans that came along, because Tetzel, just like any good marketer, he had teams going out ahead of him before he arrived with the indulgences. The marketing slogans that, that, that went with it ran along the lines of, as the coin in the money box rings, so the soul from purgatory springs. Right? Or, this sounds like a Tide commercial, the pardon makes those who buy it cleaner than baptism, 
purer than Adam in a state of innocence in paradise. How much would you pay for one of those? Right? And so he's going forth into Germany telling the population, telling the peasantry that they have to buy these indulgences in order because they still have sin that needs to be punished in their own flesh. But they can buy this indulgence to have some of that remitted and and set aside. And Luther just can't handle this anymore. And Luther's convinced by Scripture in his own experience of the Gospel that salvation is by faith in Christ alone and that a person is justified or made right before God by God's grace and there is not any more penalty to be paid because it's all been paid by Christ on the cross and by His blood. And that there's not any works or penance or indulgence granted by the church that can help you. Luther discovered in Scripture how God actually pardons sin by trust in the work of Christ alone. He understands how you are actually set free. And he was set free himself from his own burden of sin by this gospel that he discovered in Scripture. And so thus you lead up to now finally this hanging of the 95 theses on the door of Wittenberg Chapel on October 31st. And the 95 theses were quickly distributed throughout Germany and then they made their way to Rome and over a number of years councils were held to dispute Luther's doctrine and demand that he recant until finally on April 17th in 1521 Luther appears before the Diet of Worms which sounds weird. Okay, but a diet is a council and worms is a place. It's not a plate of worms. Um, But the diet of worms in Germany where he's asked again to recant his position. And what Luther was brave enough to say in these councils is that the Bible stands over the church, not the church over the Bible. The Bible tells the church what is what. The church does not correct or add to the Bible. And this was the important question at the Diet of Worms. And they asked him, do you actually say that the Pope or a council can have erred? And Luther says, yes. Because they can't imagine this because the Pope or the council of the church officially held can't make mistakes. And Luther was saying they could. And by this time, the Bible had been printed by Gutenberg's press that had come along very helpfully into common languages in the thousands. And the protest against the Catholic Church had spread so wide that actually this council ends okay for Luther. He's not burned at the stake. His friends, through the power of a friendly duke who was a friend of Luther and who paid for and guaranteed safe passage with the church, were able to actually kidnap Luther. He's going home from this council where he was guaranteed safe passage, and he gets set upon by highwaymen, and he's taken out of his carriage and hauled off and kidnapped. He's panicking. Then he realizes it's actually his friends who have captured him, made it look like he was kidnapped, and he hides out in a, in a, in a castle of this friend of his for a year. But they they rescue him from certain death. And from that point on, basically the Catholic Church has a price on Martin Luther's head, saying anybody who brings him to us will pay you generously to bring us Martin Luther uh, so that he can face what he needs to face. But he was married. He continues to write and preach from Wittenberg, uh, which is a Protestant stronghold, until his death in 1546. And during these years, with the power of the printing press at his disposal, Luther is able to distribute hundreds of papers and tracts and books in, in copies by the thousands. Okay? So that's the Reformation. Okay? That's just a snippet of the Reformation history leading up to, to Luther. And all those other people, Zwingli and, and uh, you know, all those other people that I listed are all part of it too. Hundreds of people involved in this. It eventually leads to a war against the Catholic Church. Zwingli's actually killed on the battlefield uh, where he's serving as a priest and as a, as a pastor and as a medic. And um, 
But, uh, but this is the, the revolution. This is the protest. This is the reformation historically. And you say, now, this is a really nice history lesson, and it's an illustration of the gospel from Romans, but what does this have to do with today, Paul? What does this have to do with us? Well, it has to do with today because, believe it or not, much of the world is still seeking the answer to the question these reformers were setting free from the darkness of the medieval church. The Spirit of God is still active in the hearts of men and women and alongside all of their other daily concerns, which we wake up with every day, like what are we going to wear today and how am I going to pay for the car repairs and what's for supper and you know who's going to babysit the kids tonight. At some point in everybody's life, more than once quite often, the Holy Spirit is at work and a question comes along, which is, and maybe some of you are asking today, am I okay with God? How do I know I'm going to be accepted, qualified, and justified before a holy God, even if there is one? How am I going to be okay if when, if I'm perfectly honest with myself, I've behaved in some pretty shabby ways, and quite apart from however I may have lived my life or behaved, I've lived it for my glory and not for God's. I've put my hope in dozens of things in life, and all of them have led to unhappiness or unfulfillment. And so where do I find myself at peace with myself and at peace with God? That question, the Holy Spirit is still rising in people's hearts. And the reformers were drowned and drawn and quartered and were burned at the stake and were hunted to death in order to set the answer to that question free which is it's through the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you have that question answered. I have a friend who asks me this question half-jokingly every few years. We talk about computers or baseball or cars for a bit, and then he brings up the fact that his mom told him he's Anglican. Now, he hasn't darkened the door of a church in 35 years, but he's pretty sure everything is okay with him because he was sprinkled as a baby, and he tries to be a nice guy. And he is a nice guy, but he loves his cars and his house and his girlfriends a lot more than he loves God. And I have to tell him again, you know, it's not nice people that go to heaven. In fact, there's going to be some people in heaven that we think is pretty dirty sinners by comparison even to ourselves. But it's forgiven people that go to heaven. It's not religious people that go to heaven. In fact, religion and thinking that you can qualify for heaven by doing some sort of working hard or, or, or doing some sort of sacrament is, is actually a good way to miss it entirely. It's forgiven people that go to heaven, those who trust by faith in what Christ has already done for them. People who trust not in themselves and not in religion, but only trust in Jesus who are justified. Romans three twenty one to 27 expands on what Luther saw in 16 and 17 says, but now the righteousness of God has been made known apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation or or you could say an acceptable substitute by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine patience he had passed over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works, no, but by the law of faith. It's right there. It's not just in Romans. You can pick any book. It all says the same thing. 
But this is what the reformers discovered. This is what Luther discovered. This is what people went to the stake and died for. Because this is the answer to how we are justified, how we're qualified, how we are made right before a holy God. It is not by any works of ourselves or any religion, but by our faith in what Christ has already done. And Martin Luther saw many errors. It was 95 of them, right? He had 95 theses. But they stem from three main problems that the reformers saw, which we'll summarize in closing. What speaks with authority on the answer to this question of how we're made right with God? Is it Scripture that speaks with authority, or is it the church? And the answer of the reformers, of course, was Scripture. And secondly, by what means am I justified? Am I justified by grace? through faith in Christ, or must I add to that justification by the church through works and sacraments and penance and indulgence? Is there more for me to do? And thirdly, who mediates this relationship between myself and God? Is it Christ alone, or is there also the mediation of the priests and Mary and the saints and the church and all these other people we're supposed to pray to and ask for intercession on our behalf? And it's obviously impossible to talk about the Protestant Reformation and these topics without talking about the medieval Catholic Church, which these protesters wanted to reform. And we have to remember that that none of these men or women actually wanted to split the church into two big branches. They didn't foresee or want a whole bunch of denominations on the Protestant side standing against the Catholic Church. They didn't want to see two streams of Christianity. What they wanted was reformation within the Catholic Church. Their hope was that at these councils, the Catholic Church would reform and that they would recognize the grace that is granted by God and that indulgences and sacraments and baptisms and all of these other things do not provide for our justification, but it's by grace alone. But that was not to be. But the reason the Reformation was required and the reason we have to remember it still is ongoing today is that these questions are still not resolved in the Catholic Church. You have to understand, men and women were imprisoned and beheaded and burned and drowned to set the good news of the Gospel free from the structure of religion and the Gospel has to stay free. And that's not to say that the Catholic Church and certainly not Catholic people are somehow our enemy. Right? There are broad areas of shared values. I'm not up here to say we're going to start some sort of holy war with the Catholic Church. That's not what I'm saying. It's also not to say that there's not many Christian brothers and sisters in the Catholic Church who have believed by faith and put their trust in Jesus alone. I am certain there are. I know some of them. But as was the case five centuries ago, Roman Catholicism is still a religious system that is not based on Scripture alone. From the Catholic perspective, the Bible is only one source of authority, but it does not stand alone, nor is it even the highest source of authority. The 1870 dogma of papal infallibility still stands today. The Pope is permitted to speak ex cathedra as the voice of God. The decisions of church councils are still as authoritative as Scripture, and they can add to Scripture new dogma. The idea that priests can't marry, that Mary was sinless in life and that she was bodily assumed into heaven and on and on and on. These are dogma of truth in the Catholic Church that's added onto Scripture equally authoritatively. And on salvation and this issue of salvation and how we are made right with God, some try to argue, and if you keep up on these things, this is just a quick bit of history, more recent history, the Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification was signed by the Roman Catholic Church in 1999 between them and the Lutheran World Federation. And some thought that maybe this issue of justification by faith alone would finally be resolved. But although the language is softened in the Joint Declaration, 
Justification to the Catholic Church is still a process enacted by the sacrament of the church being baptism in the Catholic Church, and it's not received by faith alone, but it is still a journey that requires contribution from the faithful on ongoing sacrament and ongoing participation in the sacramental system. And on justification, the Catholic Church view is revealed still in the unchanged doctrines of indulgences in purgatory. There's an indulgence active right now. You can get in just under the wire. November 26th is the last day of it. It's linked to the 100th anniversary of the Lady Fatima. And there's three ways you can receive this indulgence. You don't buy indulgences anymore. Okay, the, the doctrine has changed that way. But you can still participate in this indulgence by making a pilgrimage to a certain location, praying at certain idols of Lady Fatima, or doing service in her name. There's three or four different ways. You can look it up on the Internet that you can receive this indulgence to relieve some portion of the time you can anticipate to still spend in purgatory ahead of you because of your sin. This is the current teaching of the Catholic Church. That you are not completely set free from your sin. That Christ has not paid the full price. That you are not justified, but the justification is something you are still trying to attain by works. And so you say, Paul, this sounds like you really have it in for the Catholic Church. Well, yes and no. I don't particularly have it in for the Catholic Church. And I understand that this is kind of an unpopular part of the sermon and the message right here. But we can't forget that men and women died to set the gospel that we trust in free. And we cannot just gloss over the differences between the gospel of Jesus Christ and the religion that mankind makes, all kinds of religions that require that we work to attain our justification. And so that's why it's important. The good news that we can be justified, qualified, counted as righteous, not by our works or by the efforts of any religion, but by the faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone remains the same. That there is now, as Paul says in Romans 8.1, there is now therefore now no condemnation who are in Christ Jesus. That's what scripture teaches. There's no condemnation. There is no purgatory. There is no hell. There is no future punishment in store for those who believe in Christ Jesus. And that we're able to boldly enter into the presence of God without any mediator, except as we are told in Hebrews 4, 14 and 16. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in our time of need. We don't need priests and popes and bishops and cardinals and sacraments as a mediator between us and God. Christ has made the way so that we can enter boldly into the throne room of God. And so I don't want anybody to be trapped in uncertainty or trapped the way Europe was trapped for literally nearly a thousand years. Trapped in this uncertainty of their forgiveness or this uncertainty that they can know God, uncertainty that they can be justified and qualified and counted as righteous before a holy God. You absolutely can be, and that is found in the scripture and in the good news that is taught to us in the holy word of God and in no other place. Justification before God is not a reward at the end of a life journey of works and sacraments and indulgences and completed by our suffering or sacrifice. Justification is granted by the grace of God through faith at the start of our life with him. And then we walk with him justified in sanctification towards glorification. So in other words, the Catholic Church kind of has it backwards. Justification is something that you start a relationship with God and then you work on your justification and you hope that at the end you'll be justified. 
But what the gospel says is the moment you believe by faith in Christ and that he has done all the work on the cross, you are now counted as righteous. You are now justified and qualified before God. That's at the start of your relationship. And then you live that out to glorification at the end in heaven. And we can't get that mixed up. The Reformation, this is why the Reformation had to happen. It's why we must never forget to guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to us and not confuse religion with the good news that's offered plainly in the gospel of God's word. And so we remember, we don't want to be those people that forget that the Reformation was needed. The Reformation was important. And we, 500 years later, we just take it for granted. Right? Of course the Bible is the word of God. Of course it's the highest authority. Of course the gospel is good news. Of course we stand righteous before God because of Christ. Well, it's not of course. Hundreds and hundreds of men and women had to drown, had to be burned, had to die to set that gospel free in Europe so that we can stand here and preach it today. Let's pray. Father God, that's the biggest question. How do we stand righteous before you? And your answer was the gospel. It's always been the gospel. Your answer has been Jesus Christ since before the foundation of the world. It says that even in the Old Testament, even before Christ came, you were enduring with patience the sin so that you could be just and justifier in the blood of Christ Jesus when he came. And now, of course, after the cross, we see it all. How glorious that truth is. And so, Lord, we we know the answer. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we just thank you. Even, Even today, as we remember those who died for the freedoms in this world, in this civil world of this government, the freedoms we have in Canada. We know that men and women died for the freedom that we have to know and preach the gospel. And we don't want to forget the differences. And we pray that your gospel would continue to be released, that the Reformation would never end. You would be re- we would be reformed and always reforming, always correcting ourselves, always holding ourselves up to Scripture, always aligning ourselves to your words, never deviating off what the truth of your Scripture says. It's the one true authority. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of Christ. We thank you that we can enter boldly with no mediation, that there's no penance or sacrifice or payment that we have to make because he paid it all on the cross. What a glorious truth, and we celebrate it today in Christ's name. Amen.